It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello, welcome to the final edition of the Beyond Zero Science and Solutions show. I'm Kay Wenigal and Carly Dober joins me again for our final episode via the studios of 3CR Melbourne. The show is syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. As I mentioned last week, today is our final show. Our show has unexpectedly been axed. Unfortunately, as volunteers, we weren't part of the decision-making process, but we believe that you as listeners are still interested in our show. This show has been going for over 10 years, and according to your feedback, has been a great vehicle for informing people about the evolution of solutions to the wicked problem of climate change. If you're interested in finding out more about our future directions, email us at climateinsiders at gmail.com. That's one word, climateinsiders at gmail.com. We'd welcome any feedback from you and any ideas that you may have. So today we bring you the final discussion that we had with Peter Kalmus, who is a NASA scientist and a climate activist. As well as that, he's an astrophysicist and co-authored the award-winning book, Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. He's also found at the website noflyclimatesci.org. Yeah, so I'm a climate scientist. Um, I live in Los Angeles. I've got two kids. Uh, they're just about getting to high school age. Um, I work at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, and I'm speaking on my own behalf. Peter, you were talking about coral reefs before, and I know that at NASA you're doing research in a number of areas that include collecting data records that will improve applications such as drought, fire and agricultural forecasting, as well as coral reef observation. What part of your research is the most important in terms of understanding climate change effects, do you think? I don't know. That's a great question. You know, I, I kind of feel like <laughs> I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but we, we already kind of have enough climate science to know what we need to do as a as a society we don't really need more <laughs> we i mean we do need more because it'll help us with adaptation and frankly we're you know the more we learn the more we realize that it was more serious than we thought you know like sea level rise estimates keep getting revised to earlier and worse um, arctic ice loss estimates keep getting revised to earlier and worse you know we're learning more about synergistic effects uh, you know, how these different pieces of the Earth system interact and how they could make, how, how that could make things worse and how they're going to interact with our human system. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, you know. So I, I'll kind of change your question a little bit and say like what I personally think is what I'm most excited about to work on and that I think might have the most, kind of create the most sense of urgency. You know, I, I, I just, I still confuses me why, um, you know, why, why, why does this climate science create a sense of urgency in me, but not in, not so much in the public. But so the, the coral reef, I've, I've had this, this kind of long and winding path in, into science 
you know, when I was young, I was really interested in cosmology and these big questions about, how, you know, where the universe came from and where it's going. And then I started doing gravitational wave um, uh, astronomy and astrophysics because it was kind of a newer thing than the microwave cosmology. And it was, it was sort of fascinating. It was really fun to think about black holes. And then I had to make that switch, like I said, into earth science. And the way that it kind of worked out for me was thinking about clouds, um, low overcast clouds over the ocean, which, which is really important for climate sensitivity. So if the clouds, if those low overcast marine clouds start to get less thick and less, start reflecting less sunlight, that'll be an amplification to, uh, to global heating, right? Um, so, and it's very, turns out to be very hard to model clouds, um, very hard to understand them and therefore very hard to project how they're gonna change. And, but but I, I wanted to get more to the core of like somehow align my, my, my scientific work with what was like really kind of hitting me in the gut and what I was already really thinking about a lot and being kind of just drawn to, which was um, ecosystems and uh, sort of what's happening to when I go hiking, see these whole mountainsides of brown dead forests. What's happening there? How, how's that happening? What, what's good? These, these Jeffreys pines and ponderosa pines and you know giant sequoias and redwoods that I love so much, are they gonna be here when I'm an old man? Are they gonna be here for my kids? Um, can we use uh, you know, remote sensing observational data sets? Can we use ecological models? Can we use uh, in situ observations of you know, temperature and rainfall and humidity and soil moisture and so forth to, to make projections uh, about the future of giant sequoias? Can we do that for, uh, for coral reefs? And so I, I was reading some papers about coral reefs and really feeling kind of devastated by what's happening to them. I mean, it's quite, it's, it's quite sad. Uh, they're, they're these gorgeous, innocent creatures that are able to live off of light. They're like, you know, they're like photosynthetic animals. They're, they're just remarkable little beings. They're dying and they don't know what's happening. They're, there's all these heat waves, these ocean heat waves that are hitting them. And then, you know, their algal symbionts are starting to produce free radicals and they can't deal with them. They expel them and they start to starve. Sometimes it gets so hot that they basically cook and their proteins start to denature and um, they die. It's really sad what so all this is happening. So, you know, I started reading about it and, you know, kind of my expertise lies in data science and statistical methods. And I was reading some of the papers and I'm like, there's, there's some methods I could apply to these, I was thinking, to do a better job with these projections for the future. Like if the humans emit this much CO2 versus this much, how is that gonna to translate to the coral reefs later this century in terms of, uh, you know, when they start to bleach severely year after year, when they start to die, maybe there's some reefs on the planet that will last longer than others. And maybe it'd be good to know that with like, re again, really high resolution. And so that was a project that was really exciting to me to be able to use my data science skills to try to advance the state of the art for these projections for the future of coral reefs. And if we know some places, little reefs here and there that might last longer under global heating than other places, that maybe we can protect those places more, you know, put more of our resources into protecting them from things like overfishing and tourism and sedimentation and these kind of local stressors to the reefs that are also killing them at the same time the planet's getting hotter. So that's that's super exciting. And then what's really exciting about that again is I can I've developed like a sort of a toolkit 
of statistical and data science methods, which now I want to try to apply to other systems. So I'm currently writing proposals to uh, you know, one, of the, one of the other ecosystems, biological systems that I really want to look into is actually humans. And so there's been some work uh, kind of creating projections of humid heat waves, so deadly heat waves, you know, later this century, it could get pretty hard to live in uh, tropical areas that are that get really hot and humid during the summer. And you know, the the big climate models, the Earth system models, can can make projections into the future about surface temperature and surface humidity. So then you could you can look at those projections. You can downscale them with high spatial resolution remote sensing data sets. You can start combining into your analysis things like uh, urban heat island effect and whether someplace has uh, air conditioners or not, which is pretty critical. So you start getting into this human part of things. And then the health aspects. So there's synergistic effects with 2.5 micron particulate matter. So if the air quality is bad, the human body isn't as good at dealing with uh, human heat stress as if the air quality is good. So so that plays into it. And there's there's new satellites that are coming online pretty soon which are gonna to speak to some of these uh, data sets. So, so that's something that I'm trying to, to put together. And then can we, can we start refining these data science methods and applying them to other systems too, other ecosystems, maybe forests, maybe uh, kelp forests in the marine environment. But, but that's where, that, what I realized was the thing that really gets me emotionally is to see these beautiful, innocent animals and plants and ecosystems on this gorgeous planet of ours starting to decline and degrade and frankly die and feeling so helpless about that. So at least I can help sort of shed some light on that. And maybe that'll kind of the eminent loss of some of these places and kind of analyzing that eminent loss in a high level of rigor and with a high level of resolution could maybe help motivate people and motivate nations to, uh, to stop doing this to them. Is NASA doing any work in geoengineering? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Um, I'm gonna have to plead the fifth on that and uh, say I'm, I'm not really sure. I have such mixed feelings about geoengineering. Uh, you know, on one hand, I think unfortunately we probably should be researching it and understanding it better. Uh, on the other hand, it scares the bejesus out of me because um, I'm just afraid that it's going to be used by politicians as a way to, as an excuse for um, not reducing uh, fossil fuel use uh, and, and going slower on that and delaying that. It's going to, I could easily see like the fossil fuel corporations starting to become geoengineering corporations, right? That, that wouldn't surprise me in the least. I started reading a novel by Kim Stanley Robinson called Ministry of the Future or Ministry for the Future, sorry. And um, what happens in that novel in the near future, there's a huge heat wave like just what I was talking about in India that kills 10 million people and so it really shakes uh, the subcontinent to the core and there's you know there's a billion people who live there and so they start to change everything and one of the things they do is uh, unilaterally decide to do um, aerosol uh, geoengineering by flying planes uh, as high as they can and you know emitting sulfates which reflect some sunlight um, and so, you know, that, that to me, that's a plausible scenario about how, how, how things could play out. You know, one, one billionaire could unilaterally decide to do um, solar radiation geoengineering like that. Um, and I don't think we really have a good sense on how that could affect, you know, precipitation, how it's going to affect this region versus that region. There could be winners and losers with it. Um, so it's just, it's such a, 
and you're such a huge can of worms. So, so, but I just specifically, I, it's not clear to me if there's parts of parts of NASA working on that or not. I just don't know. Speaking of corporations, um, there are now many countries entering the space age and sending rockets into space for a variety of reasons. Do you think the amount of carbon generated per rocket launch is measured? Oh uh, yeah, good question. I don't. I just don't know. I haven't looked into that. Uh, to me, uh, a really significant part of what's happening there is just this um, this really misguided sense that somehow uh, we can escape Earth and like go terraform Mars or maybe go even further and find habitable worlds around exoplanets. It's just a form of insanity. Um, it's it's a you know a factor of a million maybe easier to to solve. Our problems here on Earth and find balance here on Earth than it would be to terrify for Mars. I mean, it's just so indicative of the ridiculous hubris, which, which in my opinion is kind of why we're here. We don't have a sense of gratitude or humility about this beautiful planet. And we're so arrogant. We think we're so, we're the only species kind of creating, you know, wrecking the habitability of our entire planet. And out of, out of the hundreds of millions of species, on this planet, we, we, we're arrogant enough to think that nonetheless, we're the smartest one. We're the only one wrecking the planet and we think we're the smartest one. Like how ridiculous is that? And that, that monumental uh, astronomic uh, arrogance is, you know, if you're a billionaire, you're so, you become so arrogant by all that kind of essentially unearned wealth, right? That's extracted and that, you know, we, there, there should, billionaires are emblematic of, of the huge problem, which is very tied into uh, this whole um, predicament that we're in with climate and ecological breakdown, right? This um, extraction of wealth and accumulation of capital, which is what capitalism is, is the, the this kind of the capital itself, the money, gets it so make creates its own kind of gravitational force where it just pulls more and more money in and billionaires are emblematic of that and we we but we need to distribute that wealth so we can start doing things like like building the green economy right for example and starting to deal with uh transnational inequality right which which we absolutely need to do to come out of this nightmare of climate and ecological break, breakdown also to come out of this nightmare of warfare right which is partly driven by all of this inequality this transnational inequality but anyway you have these this ridiculously arrogant billionaires who just somehow think that they can go and terraform a new planet it's just this it's, it's it's staggering to me. So yeah, we have to, I mean, if we can't learn to live well on this planet and to develop some gratitude and a sense of wonder and awe of, of how marvelous this place is, uh, I, I just, I feel like that's not an optional step. That's a prerequisite for actually coming out of this crisis is developing that, that sense of gratitude. We're speaking with Peter Kalmus, NASA scientist and climate activist. You mentioned before about how governments need to change regulations in order to address climate change. And now we're talking about billionaires and, you know, there's only a few billionaires, yet they pretty much have 80% of the world's wealth. And some of them are almost becoming trillionaires and some of them, they've, they've increased their wealth by hundreds of billions or just over the course of COVID. 
which was a COVID itself was, you know, we still, I don't think we still fully understand what a huge transfer of wealth that was from the people to the billionaires and the multimillionaires. I think in the coming decade, we'll, we'll start to pick that apart and see exactly how that worked. But yeah, I, in my opinion, that form of capitalism is a, it's a rapacious thing. It's a it's sort of a social cancer on this planet that just, it needs to grow exponentially year after year after year, which means the economy keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year, exponentially going up this, hitting this wall of, of very, very rapid growth. You know, everyone, it's, people are fond of saying that as, as, you know, over the last 30 years, humanity has, has emitted as much CO2 pollution into the atmosphere as that, uh, you know, all previous times in history up to 30 years ago. That's just the nature of exponential growth. It's growing at a little bit over 2% per year. So the rule is you take 70 divided by the annual growth and you get about 30 years. So the doubling time is, is 30 years. That's, that's all it is. And, you know, so can we really afford 30 years from now or even less to have, you know, an economy and a carbon emissions that's twice what it is today? The answer is, of course not. Can we have, you know, twice as much pressure on wild places and, you know, agriculture converting rainforests into palm oil plantation? Can we have twice as much of that pressure on the natural world as we have today? The answer is, of course not. I think the natural enemy to physicists are probably economists because they call it decoupling, that somehow we can magically take all of human activity and, and have it completely be separate from the physical world, right? Natural resources, uh, energy use, somehow we're going to magically just like live off of information. And that information isn't going to produce any carbon and require any energy, which is ridiculous, right? Look at how much energy Bitcoin uses, for example. Uh, Bitcoin's get, starting to get up to flying levels of, uh, of carbon emissions, right? It's, it's again, it's another one of these absurdities here. We're, we just seem to be going into, into this land of absurdities, like terraforming Mars and going through wormholes and changing money into Bitcoin, which basically runs off of coal and oil and fossil gas, right? It's, it's just, it's a weird thing. But, but yeah, we, you know, we, we need policies. The Green New Deal, in my opinion, it's a good thing, but it's just, just barely scratching the surface and it's, do, it's saying the easy stuff. Green growth, green jobs, more renewables, that's the easy stuff. Uh, going further than that, we, we actually have to start using less energy, that's critical. You know, we have to start meeting renewables halfway. If, for example, in, in, I did a calculation where in the United States, if we were able to use half as much electricity and we waste so much here, I mean, uh, energy use in the United States is roughly per capita twice what it is in Europe. And they're not exact, exactly wearing hair shirts and they're living perfectly full energy lives in Europe. And yet in North America, Canada, and the United States, we're, we're using twice as much energy. If we could cut our electricity use in half, we would need to to create only a quarter as much renewable electricity and a quarter as much storage for that electricity because you already have some hydro, you already have some nuclear, which is going on. So you have a baseline. So you know if you reduce the total by half, you only have to build a quarter as much. And, and that general principle applies everywhere. I mean, we, we have to start radically reducing uh, energy consumption. Instead, we're, we're increasing it. And you know it's, it's, again, it speaks to that global inequality, um, the, the difference between ultra rich people and even just globally kind of normally rich people who fly a lot, you know, only 20% of humanity has been on a plane because the other 80% can't afford to get on a plane. So, you know, there's just this huge energy inequality and the people that aren't consuming all that energy are the ones that are going to get 
living mostly in the tropics are going to get hammered first and heaviest by climate and ecological breakdown. So, um, yeah, this all this has to be dealt with with national policies. And then I think you know we 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 have to deal with uh, kind of reducing energy demand with starting to ration fossil fuel and kind of we we want the the entire fossil fuel energy uh, industry to disappear. But of course, it controls a lot of our politics, right? Especially in Australia and the United States. So that corruption uh, is causing us, it's really slowing down how, you know, people in the United States, you know, 70, 75% of the population wants much more aggressive action on climate. But our politics is captured by corporations, especially the fossil fuel corporation. So that goes beyond the Green New Deal, ending that corruption and, and kind of getting rid of this industry. The, the, Green New Deal doesn't talk about that at all, but it's super important. And we have to go even further than that and deal with this economic exponential growth, this uh, this sort of addiction to growth that our current economic system has, which hardly anyone's talking about yet. So, so yeah, we, we've got a lot of work to do kind of going far beyond the Green New Deal. And it all has to happen somehow at kind of the national policy level, which means my, my theory of change, we just have to get the public you know, the body public has to get so concerned and see this as such a big emergency that any policymaker who doesn't treat it like an emergency gets gets voted out and we vote in people who will treat it like an emergency. And we're not there yet. You know, so the United States, apart from part of this, there's media involved, right? Rupert Murdoch, um, Fox News in the United States. You've got Rupert. He's a cancer in Australia for you guys as well, too, I think, mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the media space, just corrupting the conversation very dishonestly, right? And so, you know, the, the the public attention is sort of captured by this. I can't actually see how any national government can control companies that are bigger than, nearly as big at least, as um, you know, GDP. You know, that's that's where we're at now. It's a, it's a new age of robber barons, a new age of billionaires. Pretty soon it's going to be an age of trillionaires where corporates are, so corporations are bigger than some nations and they control the laws of those nations um you know and then we have to go even further and and sort of start creating in kind of real international structures to do all that really again if we can get the public to really treat this like an emergency these kinds of changes and these kinds of policies might start coming faster than we think it's just i think that's going to be that's intrinsically unpredictable that sort of social change which is why i keep pushing with like climate ad project and other stuff i'm just trying to keep sending this message that this, yes, this is an emergency, here's why, yes, this is an emergency, here's why, just to try to wake people up um, as, as effectively as I can. But what another kind of ray of hope is maybe policy for uh, what I call a universal climate income, where you make uh, fossil fuels get more and more expensive every year. You put this fee on based on how much is emitted when you burn the stuff. So when it comes in, when you take it out of the ground or when it comes in over your border, you slap on this fee, and then um, so that makes petrol more expensive. It makes flying in planes more expensive. Anything that used a lot of fossil fuels, the, the price of that uh, product would reflect the, the, the heavier and increasingly heavy cost of fossil fuels used to make that product. Um, and then of course, when you, when you bought that stuff, you'd pay that. But 100% of that would get returned equally to every citizen. So poor people, middle-income people come out ahead because, again, rich people just use so much more fossil fuel. They're just 
waste so much more energy that they would be contributing more into the kitty. And then it would get divided up among everyone and it would turn into like a, what I call again, a universal climate income. It'd be ex extraordinarily popular because it would be like basically a monthly dividend check. And it would, I think it would lead to international cooperation because you have, you know, goods moving over borders. And if you, if your nation had this policy and somebody, you're importing stuff from another nation that didn't have it, you would put a tariff on that. So it would make their products seem more expensive and it would encourage the other nations to adopt a similar policy, right? Because if another nation had the same level of uh, carbon price as yours, there wouldn't be any border adjustment necessary. So that's one way that the nations of the world maybe can kind of move lockstep toward eliminating fossil fuels. Here, here. I look forward yeah. to that happening. Now, I know that um, we've taken up a lot of your time and I'm sure there are people are wanting to know what they can do. Where would you point them to, to find out more or um, to help more? Well, I, I would say, first of all, uh, join a group. Uh, so if there's some climate activist group near you, so there's a lot of different groups now. Um, so you find one that fits your personality and, and your goals. So that's the first thing. Second, there's an app that I've been working on called Earth Hero. So you can go to earthhero.org and get that. Um, currently, that helps you sort of um, take actions in your own life to align your kind of how you live with your principle for not, for, you know, for wanting to, you know, reduce your climate impact. And we're currently, our team is working to, um, to, to, to help this app get people involved in, in groups, um, you know, and join groups and help those groups, climate activist groups, find new members. Because there's a lot of people that are climate concerned, but they don't really, like you said, they don't really know what to do. It's hard to tell. But most of all, I would say, get creative, get courageous, be willing to take risks. And of course, there's also your book, Being the Change. Yeah, so it was, came out in 2017. Um, you know, you can buy a paper copy or you can, I also put it up on my website, uh, peterkelmus.net, so you can read parts of it there. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time today, Peter. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Peter Kelmus, NASA scientist and climate activist. Doesn't he have an amazing passion? And he's so inspiring. As I mentioned earlier, this is our last show. We have had a wonderful time talking with all the people that have been involved in the evolution of solutions to the climate change issue. So much has changed in this space over the last decade, and it's people like you and Peter Kalmus that are driving that change. Keep up the great work you're doing. And if you're interested in finding out about our future directions, send us an email at climateinsiders at gmail.com. That's one word, climateinsiders at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you and get any ideas that you have or just discuss what is going to happen in the future. Thank you for all your support over all these years. And goodbye from the team. Kelly Dober, Nat Bucknell, Mike Steindl and Kay Wenigle. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pantidra. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. 
solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.